0: Welcome back to Unity and Diversity. Uh, My name is Jeremy. I'm excited to be in class with you all this morning. If you haven't yet gotten a handout, you'll be helped by these handouts. So make sure that you have one. You can grab one on your way in, or if you don't have one, feel free to slip out of your seat and go grab one. Uh, Ryan Troglin is standing there in the back, and he'd be happy to guide you to one. So, so far in this class, we've been talking about unity and diversity in the local church, But this morning, we're going to be looking at not diversity, but similarity. In particular, we're looking at why God cares about similarity in the church. So before we begin, I want to solicit some thoughts from each of you. What are the potential dangers of not talking about similarity in a class like this? What are the potential dangers of talking only about diversity and not about similarity in a class like this? Thoughts from y'all. Yeah, Nick. Absolutely. So Nick's just making the point that similarity in relationships, shared values help us to enhance those same values with one another. So it, he also raises a helpful point. When we talk about similarity, we're talking about people who are similar to us, people who have similar educational backgrounds, similar socioeconomic background, just people that we naturally connect with because we share similarity with them. We've been talking about the importance of connecting with people who are different than us. So me as a young single guy connecting with an older married couple, that would be kind of a diverse relationship that's good and that demonstrates the gospel. But is there any issue with me connecting with, say, someone like Nick Sigalakis, who is also young and single? So that's, that's kind of what we're getting at there. What are some other ways that um, similarity is important to talk about in a class like this? Maybe one more answer. Like yeah. Yeah, Brady's making the point that sometimes we can just feel bad for developing relationships with those who are similar to us when we should be making relationships with those who are different than us. Is it wrong to develop deep relationships with people who are similar to us in the church? I see some shaking heads, no. Maybe someone who's brave enough to respond, why is that okay? Dave makes an excellent point that if we only pursue relationships with people who are different than us, we're actually being prejudicial in a certain way. (laughs) We're not esteeming and valuing all of the people that God in his providence has brought together in the life of our church together. And that actually is a way that we can make an idol out of unity and diversity without the purpose of actually serving or honoring Christ. So hopefully that's getting your mind kind of going as we think about um, the topic for today. I think, you know, as, as I just try to summarize some of these ideas, we need to examine the value of similarity because we need to understand, even as just Dave just said, all, everything that God has built into our congregation, not just our diversity. God has built so much into our congregation and not just diversity. So there's really two dangers that we need to avoid in a class like this. To repeat the obvious, we need to avoid a church where people only befriend those who are similar to them. If that happens, we don't have a diversity that magnifies the gospel. Or if we do have diversity, it's not true unity and diversity, but really just a bunch of pockets of homogeneity. You could think of the difference between, say, like a melting pot and a mixed salad. As the country, the United States, we pride ourselves in being a melting pot. But if you really look at it, or say you go to a city like New York, you're really just going to see a bunch of pockets of people who are similar to one another, but in the same kind of general area. That's more like a mixed salad than it is a melting pot. As a church, we want to be a melting pot. We want to both be diverse, yes, but also to be engaged um, in diversity of relationships with one another, not just to pull apart to different pockets of relationships. I think that's a real danger for a church that's our size, where we're large enough for many different subgroups in their church to form their own subcultures, when moms with young kids only hang out with moms with young kids, when singles only hang out with singles, when students only hang out with students, that's the danger we've been talking about most in this class. But the other danger is the one that Brady was talking about, one where we feel guilty for any relationship where we have more than Christ in common. So me personally, Jeremy, I'm a male, single, white suburban background, college educated, does that mean I should avoid friendships with people who do not fit into these demographic categories? Of course not. There's a few problems with thinking like this. First, it's not how we're made. Think of Adam and Eve in the garden. When God had already made Adam and the rest of creation, there was still something lacking. What was lacking? Yeah, so God had made Adam and the rest of creation. Say again? Eve was missing. Eve was missing. That's right. One important thing was lacking. Very important. God says in Genesis 2.18, 2 excuse me, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. This is Sarah was pointing out. That phrase fit for him literally means that which corresponds of a similar counterpart. God has made us to crave understanding which people who share our background can offer. The second reason is that it's short-sighted to think that we should avoid relationships with people who are similar to us. There are some very real spiritual benefits to a relationship where we share more than Jesus, as I'll explain in just a moment. And we need those things to grow as Christians. Do You remember how Solomon closes his book of Ecclesiastes, that famous piece of wisdom literature? He says, The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. That's Ecclesiastes 12.13. God has instilled in every human an innate sense, whether they recognize it or not, of duty to fear God and to keep his commandments. And we seriously handicap ourselves from attaining that goal if we cut ourselves off from those who intuitively or experientially relate to us. The third reason, it's paralyzing. If I simply say, diverse friendships good, similar friendships bad, that doesn't give you any ability to make uh, godly trade-offs between the two just like if I were to stand up here and teach evangelism good, career bad, that's a false dichotomy. I would need to teach on the spiritual value of investing in your career. If I never did that, I would never equip you to trade off time and opportunity for evangelism with time and opportunity for your career, which can lead to evangelistic opportunities. We need to understand the spiritual value on both sides, friendships of diversity and friendships of similarity if we're going to make good trade-offs between them so that's what we're going to do for the rest of our time together i want to look at the value of similarity in a church and then we'll examine some guidelines for navigating the trade-offs between different types of friendships we went fairly quickly through that first section there that first page on your handout i want to pause for a moment if there are any questions anything to be clarified All right, seeing none, let's turn to Luke chapter 6. So you'll grab your Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 6. And can someone read for us verses 12 through 16? You going to read that for us, Mike? In these days he went out
1: to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued his prayer to God. And when they came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alpheus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas
0: Iscariot, who became a traitor. Thank you. On the surface, this passage just looks like a bunch of different names, right? There's a bigger story to these names, though. Notably, this is just an aside, but you see there in verse 12 that right before Jesus makes this huge decision of who the 12 disciples are going to be that are going to follow him, that are going to later be sent out by him to build up his church, he spends all night continuing in prayer to God, seeking wisdom from God, asking for God's direction. But again, he finally lands on these 12 disciples, and there's a kind of a diverse group here, a very kind of ragtag group of different men with different backgrounds. Think about Matthew, who's also called Levi. He's a wealthy tax collector who serves the interests of the Roman Empire. The Jews view him as an instrument of Roman oppression and a thief for charging higher tax rates to pad his own pockets. But next, consider Simon the Zealot. Zealots were the radical political activists of the day who were zealous for the Jewish law and who hated Rome. Here we have one man who works in service to Rome and another who would love to see Rome overthrown. Both men would never in their lives think that they would be sharing a meal together until they met Jesus who unites those at odds with one another. But not only do we see diversity in this group of disciples, we also see some similarities. Who were the three disciples closest to Jesus? Peter, James, and John. Anyone know what these three disciples shared in common with one another? Yeah, all Galilean fishermen. Both James and John were brothers and fishing partners with Peter, so they ran together quite often they probably knew each other pretty well. And whatever Jesus' purposes were for choosing those three, he didn't shy away from their similarity. So what is the value of their similarity? Well, mainly that people who are similar to each other intuitively understand each other. Whenever I lived in D.C. as someone who had never lived outside of the South before, most of the time when I interacted with new people, it took a while to kind of start to understand one another. There was some, such a diversity of background, and that's even within the same country with a shared language. But oddly enough, there's a unique amount of Baylor grads in the D.C. area. And so as a Baylor graduate myself, whenever I would run into a Baylor grad, we immediately had that in common, and then conversation was able to just reach a certain level that wasn't able to happen right away with different people. So that's just an illustration of how A certain similarity that we shared was able to kind of cultivate or foster deeper conversation, deeper relationship, a certain relational capital that could be leveraged for good purposes. So whether it's a similar life stage or similar culture, similarity gives someone a natural understanding of you. They don't have to ask. And that understanding is so useful. So let's think about four particular reasons that this is useful. You'll see the first one there under subpoint so A on your handout. People who understand you can instruct you better. Turn with me to Titus chapter 2. Titus comes right after 1st and 2nd Timothy, right before Philemon and the book of Hebrews. Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 1, Paul writes to Titus and he says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Why in Titus 2 does Paul instruct these older women to train the young women to love their husbands and children and to instruct these children? Why not leave all the training to pastors? Well, because men and women are different. No matter what the culture says today, men and women are different. That's why. And older women know something about being a young woman that neither the young nor the men can speak to. Of course, this does not mean that others besides older women are incapable or inept at instructing the younger women. But that God uses the distinct similarity between older and younger women in the church for their edification i wonder this begs the question who might you share similarity with that you could leverage that similarity for their edification who within the church might you share some similarity with that might receive your instruction or your encouragement your exhortation because of the similarity that you share because they trust and know that you understand them. Moving on to that second point. People who understand you can encourage you in your struggles. Think of Second Corinthians chapter one, verse Paul. Uh, <laughs> verse four, Paul says, "We may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God." Or most profoundly, think of the incarnation, that is when the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, took on flesh and became human. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 4, verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Jesus became like us in every way, except that he never sinned expressly for the purpose of lovingly saving us. As the old church fathers once said, for that which he has not assumed, he has not saved. In other words, Jesus became human so that he might save humans. He was both fully God and fully man. And yet the writer of Hebrews is also encouraging us with the truth that Jesus' humanity, his similarity with us, is a means by which he extends compassion and sympathy towards us. Encouragement by someone who gets it has a special place in our lives. I'd love to hear some responses from you if you have them. Can you all think of any examples in your life where you've received encouragement that was significant because the person was similar to you? Can you think of any examples in your life where you've received encouragement that was significant because that person was similar to you? the Lord. Sarah's noting the just encouragement that she receives at the Women's Institute that's hosted here at UBC where women gather to hear instruction from God's word where they're yeah being taught different doctrines of the word and there's a yeah just a special encouragement that comes from gathering with those women and hearing other women teach the word to one another that's good. Any other examples of ways you've been encouraged by those who are similar to you we can give praise to God for? really good. Claire's noting the point that when you have a, a, a certain experience, maybe your parents divorce, maybe you've experienced the loss of a child, um, there's a, a way in which when that thing happens to someone else, you can relate, you can empathize with them in a in a way that's just going to bring much encouragement to that other person. And that's just a note of practical application that as you sit here and you think about that, what, what experience just in the Lord's providence, have you gone through in this life that aren't just meant for your own sake, for you to kind of relish in, and um, they're probably good for your own personal sanctification. But how might God have ordered those various sufferings or those various trials so that when you see someone else in the church going through those same trials, you can relate to them in a very specific way? You can remember how you felt, Remember how the gospel encouraged you in that and then relate to the thing that they're feeling and then apply the gospel in the same way that others or maybe just from your own reading of the word, it has been applied to you in that challenging time. So this is another way that we see that similarity that we share can be used for just wonderful redemptive purposes in the life of our church. Yeah, John. That's good. Yeah. 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 Super helpful. John's making the point that um there's there's so much specificity to our lives. Each of us have a specific context. A circumstance maybe a job as he pointed out a school teacher in a public school that faces specific problems and so how can we then take this word that we've experienced in a specific way and then help them understand and encourage it apply it to that's, that specific situation it can be very easy to just kind of get caught in the motions of life or just life in the church body and to not think about the need for some of that specific encouragement or instruction from god's word. But we should always be um, kind of putting ourselves in other shoes and trying to understand how we can bring God's word and bring the gospel specifically to bear on those various situations. Yeah, Dan. Yeah. Amen. Dan saying that God's word is sufficient to address all problems. So even though we do need to be uh, specific related to our experiences and applying God's word in that way, even if we don't relate to someone's specific experience, God's word will still sufficiently address various issues. So don't shy away from giving encouragement if you feel prompted or if you think that it would be a means by which they can be encouraged. Amen. Let's move on to that third sub point there, point C understanding builds trust you no know, i've been struck by the dynamic between trust and understanding in 1st peter chapter 3 peter there is writing to women who are tempted toward fear because they've chosen to submit themselves to non-christian men who will sometimes use that authority not for the good of their wives but for their own good peter encourages these, encourages these women to resist fear by trusting ultimately in god not only their husband but then Peter advises the husbands, he says, live with your wife in an understanding way, literally according to knowledge. His advice isn't to have a great decision-making track record, though that will certainly help. No, his advice is to know her, to understand her, to empathize with her, to make sure that she feels understood and considered. So while a decision he makes may be difficult for her, she knows that it hasn't been made without careful attention to the cost she'll bear. When one feels properly understood and like they're being heard, they are more prone to trust the other person, even in times of uncertainty. You know, as a note of practical application, we can always be asking ourselves, am I a good listener? Do I genuinely seek to understand where others are coming from and what their experiences demonstrate about their desires, their longings, their anxieties? When we become good listeners, we cultivate trust with others and we thus equip ourselves to better love one another in the church. One practical way that you can practice becoming a good listener is by thinking ahead of time. Maybe you know that you're going to encounter someone at church. Maybe you have a meeting with someone later that week. Maybe you're just about to go see a good friend that you feel like you really relate to. How can you prepare ahead of time by thinking of specific questions to make them feel cared for. What specific questions can you ask them when you see them that will go beyond just kind of shooting the breeze or whatever it may be so that they can feel as if they're truly being heard? Listen to them intently and engage with their response. Part of fulfilling the command to count others as more significant than ourselves from Philippians 2 is by The understanding, the sympathy, and the true listening that we extend towards others. It's easy to trust someone that we know is seeking to understand us. Point four there, understanding gives grace in exhortation. So in Galatians, we read about Peter, a Hebrew, caving in to those who would force Gentiles to adopt Jewish customs if they wanted to be Christians. And who is it that confronts Peter there in the book of Galatians? Paul, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Not a Gentile, but Paul, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Paul could see right through what Peter was doing. And as a Jew, no one could accuse Paul of self-serving motives for saying what he said to Peter. Do you see the value of his own similarity to Peter in this situation. There's a wise humility that raises the bar for exhortation when we don't understand someone's background. And yet sometimes that leaves behind some missed opportunities. If I need to be corrected, it's often someone who is similar to me, who has confidence that I do in fact need to be corrected and who can make that correction specific. We could certainly keep going about some different values uh, to our own similarity. But I think these four give us a good taste of why similarity is important in the church. It's important because God uses it to help us follow Christ. That's a kind of simple way to understand this, that God can use our own similarity to help us follow Christ. Before we move on to this third point, I just want to again pause for a moment, see if there's any questions, any reflections. Yeah, Nick. Um, I, I guess thinking to the value of similarity and, and to point A about the common
2: Titus two. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Nick is pointing out that Paul in the, uh, his, his pastoral epistles, the book of First and Second Timothy and in the book of Titus, there's a heavy, heavy emphasis on the importance of sound doctrine, sound teaching, understanding God's Word rightly. And so if there's any means at our disposal that we can use to help others more clearly understand what God has revealed to us in His Word, by all means, we should take advantage of it. Absolutely. Let's move on to pursuing the right balance, that third point there on your handout. So as we've said, if all of our friendships in this church fit into one category, we're missing a huge reason for why this church exists, yet we've also seen the value of our similarity. If no one understands me because no one is similar to me, it makes my pursuit of Christ that much more of a steeper climb. But how can we navigate between these two? Well, as often as the case, I can't give you a fixed set of guidelines, something like make sure that you share no more than 78.9% of friendships with people who share the same interest and 64.2% of uh, friendships with people who are similar to you. Uh, That doesn't add up to 100%, but you get the point. Life just doesn't work that way. The best advice that I think I can give to you, or maybe some good advice, I don't particularly like superlatives, so some good advice that I can give to you is this. Ask your friends, maybe the friend who's most different from you in the church and maybe the friend who is most similar to you, how you're doing in navigating the balance between similar and diverse relationships and friendships in the church. Pray that God would point out any selfishness or short-sightedness In your heart maybe that is a one that we can use a superlative with that it is the best way that we should be a praying people that we should often pray that god would reveal any kind of uh, ways in which we might be showing prejudice in our relationships there are a few guidelines that are helpful in this area helping us to balance these two these two ideas so the first is to recognize that you need multiple types of friendship. Think about the picture of the balanced food plate that the Department of Agriculture uses. When I was a kid, they uh, used the food pyramid, but apparently they've upgraded to a plate. So now it's the balanced food plate. But you can imagine on this this picture of the food pyramid that it wouldn't be good to only eat burgers and fries. You would only have one piece of the pyramid filled, right? No, you need to throw in some of your veggies. You need to throw in some grains. You need to throw in all of these different things to kind of have a well-balanced diet. So we can think of striving to cultivate a balanced plate or pyramid of relationships in the church. There are relationships where someone especially builds up into you and encourages you. There are relationships where you build into and disciple someone else. There are mutual friendships. And then here's the key. There are relationships where you are only friends with this person. Because you're a Christian, (laughs) not for any natural reason. All are healthy and important. Some of these categories can overlap, but if there aren't any in that last category, friendships where Christ is the only thing you have in common with someone, you should be concerned. You should also be concerned if you don't have any friendships with people where you share a lot in common. That's probably not sustainable. The lack of those friendships isn't a cause for a pity party. No one in my church understands me. Remember, God has put you here, at least for now, for a reason. And he understands you. And as Dan made the point earlier, God's word is sufficient to sustain us. But it is a good cause for a conversation with someone you trust. The best place to start, though, might be to ask some of those diagnostic questions that Troglin asked at the beginning of the year. If you still have your handout from the, the uh, first week of our class, Unity and Diversity, somewhere at home or maybe even with you, encourage you to look back at that. How often do you have meaningful conversations with those who are different in age from you? With those who are in a different line of work from yours? Who in the church with a different ethnic or educational or socioeconomic or age background from yours do you know well enough that you could pray for their family and their jobs. Moving on to that second point, let's be honest about what kind of church culture we have. This is maybe a hard one to consider, but we do need to be honest about what kind of church culture we have. It might be tempting to say that a church is a place where we have nothing in common but Jesus. It sounds great. It sounds biblical. It sounds spiritual, Right? But the problem is is that it's just not true there's nothing in this world that is completely culture neutral every church has a certain culture a certain feel a certain majority so in our church there are more people with light skin than there are people with dark skin there are more people who grew up in america suburbia than anywhere else probably more people with post high school degrees than without More people who probably like Onyx than they like Folgers. More people who register with the Republicans than the Democrats. More people who are married and have families than singles. It may not always be like this. And this certainly doesn't mean that someone who isn't in one of these categories is unable to be a healthy, thriving member here for decades. But what I just described is, I think, true. That is who we are as a church, and it wouldn't serve anyone to deny that reality. Imagine for a minute someone who doesn't fall into many of these categories. Maybe it's a single parent, an unmarried 50-year-old, an African-American, or a Saudi international student. When these folks build up the courage to talk about the difficulty of fitting in or relating to those in the church, it might be easy to overlook those feelings and immediately say, no, Sarah, come on. Whenever we see you, we don't see the single parent. We just see you, Sarah, the Christian. But that hurtfully erases part of who she is and it invalidates any of the challenges that she might uniquely face in this church that you do not personally experience. We need to be honest about the fact that, yes, this church is a harder place for her than it is for someone, say, like myself. We have the church we have today because God, in his sovereign purposes, has given it to us. And we shouldn't be ashamed of that, nor should we think that it should change, nor should we think that there's anything necessarily wrong with that. But we need to be honest about its strengths and weaknesses so we can help encourage and relate to those who are on the outside. Third, learn how to build understanding without similarity. It might sound like I'm saying the best way to get to know someone is to have something in common with them. But that is in no way true. I've heard from married couples if you ask a husband and a wife and on their fifth anniversary, how much of their understanding of their spouse came from the stuff they shared in common before they got married, and how much of it is from the experience of building a marriage these last five years. Just stick around in this own church for another five years, and I bet that you will find you have a lot more people who understand you and who have things in common with you than you realize. We can build that. We can cultivate that over the course of time, regardless of your demographic or social similarity. Better than that, we should make an effort to live life together. Take time to work in children's ministry with someone you don't know well. That's one of the coolest things about working in children's ministry, other than sharing the gospel with children, is that we get to serve alongside those who are maybe different than us. Disciple someone from an unfamiliar background. I Again, I, I gave that book away, When People Are Big and God is Small, um, earlier because it, it speaks into this issue of fear of man. And uh, Satan loves to use the the fear of man that we all feel to keep us from starting discipling relationships with other people. You think, ah, oh, man, this person probably wouldn't be interested or oh, this person's like, they're too different for me. I don't know if it would work well. And so we just don't do it. But God has so many purposes for the way he has, again, uniquely fit us together as a church that encourage. We can ask to disciple others who are different from us, and God can use those differences as a means of helping us to build understanding, even if we do not have similarity with one another. You can have people over to your house who are really different from you. I think this is actually something that our church does really well. The amount of homes that I've been invited over to where, in earthly terms, I don't share a whole lot in common with these people. Keep doing that. Be encouraged that when you do that, you're helping to cultivate a type of unity and diversity in the church that honors God, that glorifies Him, and that helps us to really press into the identity that we share, that we can build understanding without similarity. Just because you're not apparently similar to other people in our church doesn't mean that they cannot grow in their understanding of you and vice versa. Fourth, recognize that some people need more similarity than others. Now, this is a hard point to make because it can be the entry point for some serious selfishness. Like if I were to say some people need more leisure time than others, (laughs) Maybe you're a third culture kid who grew up with the military or on the missions field. Long ago, you abandoned the idea that anyone would fully kind of understand you based on similarity. Well, that can be rough, but it can also be a great gift that you can leverage for the sake of enduring and and, and being in a place where you maybe don't share a lot of similarity with others. Maybe on the other hand, you're someone who really, really struggles if you're not in relationships where people intuitively get you. God has good purposes for how he's made you as well. And again, that doesn't give you a get-out-of-jail-free card or a means to be complacent or a means to be even sinfully uh, unwilling to grow and to press into relationships that are um, dissimilar to you. But not every person is built to be a trailblazer. (laughs) And there's nothing spiritually weak about making decisions based on where God hasn't given you a particular strength, but while also asking others and asking God for the help of developing that, of growing in that. In other words, being somewhat uncomfortable in your church, excuse me, being comfortable in your church can be okay. That doesn't mean it's always okay, but it can be okay. Again, just coming back to what Brady said earlier, there can be kind of this developed idea that if we're ever comfortable in the church that, or if we're comfortable in the relationships that we have, that that's somehow wrong and we need to go out of our way. This is where we have to invite other people into our lives. We have to pray to ask God to maybe reveal any sin that may be in our hearts, because that might be a means by which the Spirit is convicting us to step out, to recognize that we do need to step out. But we also can recognize that it's not always a bad thing. God gives those good gifts of similarity as a means of encouragement and as a means by which we can understand and grow in Christ. Remember, One way to make sure you're not using this as an excuse to slip into complacency is to talk with your friends about that and to check your friendship plate or your friendship pyramid, as we talked about a little bit earlier. If you can go through and think of people in those different categories, that probably means that you're in a fairly healthy spot. Fifth or point E there on your handout. Aspire to relationships where similarity isn't necessary. The more we fall in love with the gospel and with Jesus, who we share in common with every true Christian, the more that we'll find it natural to build relationships across chasms that the world would consider unnatural. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the the mystery of the gospel, that Jews and Gentiles can be inheritors of the same kingdom of God, that they can inhabit the same church. People who are diametrically opposed to one another through Christ have everything in common. And so as we consider these topics, we must recognize that we need to aspire to relationships where similarity isn't necessary, but because we have Christ in common, we can relate. The more experience we have loving the other, and by the way, the workplace and neighborhood and a marriage are great training grounds for this, the better we'll be in situations where we don't share a lot in common. We shouldn't settle for churches built On a community of similarity. Again, we shouldn't settle for churches and church communities that are built on similarity. Instead, we should aspire. We should aspire to build relationships where all we need in common is Jesus. Again, that's kind of the the thrust of much of what we've been talking about over the course of this whole class. There's a unique way that being unified in diverse relationships demonstrates the beauty of the gospel. Of course we're taking a class to recognize the the beauty of those similarities in these relationships. But again, as followers of Christ and as those who still wage war against the battle of sin in this world, we must recognize that very easily we can slip into complacency when we're pursuing friendship or relationship in in similar in similar ways. We can forget that we can indeed have only the gospel in common with someone else, and that's sufficient. And in fact, we should aspire for those types of relationships and that type of community within our church. Finally, point F. Sees similarity as a special and potentially dangerous stewardship. I hope that one thing you take away from all of this is that in a church that desires to glorify the gospel, similarity brings cost as well as benefit. The benefit is a natural understanding that can help us in powerful ways But the cost is that this same similarity can overrun our unity in Jesus. In other words, because we share so much in common, we can be complacent about the spiritual things that we share. So when we find ourselves in relationships that do share a few things in common, we need to see that as a special stewardship from God. Again, when we find ourselves in relationships where we do, in fact, share in common several different things or some things with someone, as Christ's followers, we need to recognize that that comes with a stewardship. It's not just a gift from God, but a stewardship, something that is to be used for his specific purposes. You know, UBC, we resist having life groups that are oriented around similarity as much as possible for reasons that you can now understand. We want to magnify the gospel by having diverse relationships in the life of our church. But there are some places where we have groups that have similar interests. Sarah pointed out the Women's Institute a little bit earlier. That's a means by which we have similar relationships that are used for that stewardship of magnifying the gospel, instructing one another, building one another up in Christ. One of the areas of ministry I oversee, college ministry, is another one of those areas. For young impressionable students, the opportunity to provide focused teaching, mentorships, and friendships with peers seems to be to us a, a benefit that's worth the cost of similarity. And yet at the same time, we want to limit that cost, which is why we encourage students to be a part of intergenerational life classes and equipping classes and life groups and discipling relationships. As we think about the, this reality that similarity has a special and potentially dangerous stewardship, we have to ask ourselves different questions. Do you have a friendship where you share ethnicity or hometown or school or profession? That's great. Praise God for that. But are you using it well? You should be more specific in your encouragement, more knowledgeable in your exhortation. When you answer the question, what's the value of similarity in that relationship? I hope that it's not because it makes things so comfortable, but rather that it's because I can steward this For the sake of this person's benefit, for the glory of God, and for the edification of our own church. Let's use our similarity for God's honor and glory, not just our own comfort. Now we've finished a little bit early because I want to ask a few different questions and hear some feedback from each of you, and then we'll take some time to dismiss before we head over to our our service later. So which of these values of similarity this morning have been particularly helpful for you so that's on the second page of your handout the value of similarity which of these values of similarity have maybe been particularly helpful for you or ones that you would maybe add that we didn't cover this morning What's one you might put into practice? Go ahead, Joy. Joy's making the point that it can be very easy to just become passive in relationships with people who are similar to us. Just kind of continue on because it's just natural. It's organic. But there is a level of intentionality that relates to that stewardship. If we're going to steward these relationships well, we need to be specific about our encouragement, specific about our exhortation to them, specific about the ways that we can leverage those relationships for the gospel. Yeah. Were you going to add something, Dan? Oh yeah, similar to what we were just talking about. Yeah, Dan's making a point to particularly note, like, the things we struggle with. Life is hard, and we do struggle with various things. I love that line from C.S. Lewis on Friendship, where he says that friendship is kind of like walking alongside someone, and you uh, look up, and you're like, oh, you too? And you realize that you're right next to one another. And struggles can be kind of the same way. Uh, You kind of bury it deep within. You never bring it out. You never allow others into that. But then you share it, and not only is the other person able to bear that with you, but you might realize that other people carry some of the same struggles and you can work with one another to be encouraged. Now, what about from that section on the the right balance, pursuing the right balance? Which of these, would you add any to these? Are there any that were particularly convicting or maybe that you would push back on? Yeah, Mike. Jeremy, I just think we live cross-culturally a lot. Yeah. yeah
1: yeah there's just so much more we, we find it to be the case that we can go into cross cultural setting and work with people who we share absolutely nothing in common with including language yeah. and culture. and build rapport through understanding and that life
0: experience becomes shared yeah Mike's making the point that I think particularly just in our current cultural setting here in America, we're so inwardly focused. There's a certain kind of, he used the analogy, a pot that we're sitting in that is swirling with all sorts of waters of different values, modernity, intersectionality, various things that cause us to look within ourselves rather than out into the ways that we can connect with others who are different than us. Um, And we need to be aware of those things. If you want to be instructed and edified to think more about that, you should go ask Mike some more questions, a learned man who has much to say. Hey, and I've been reading a book that's really challenging but good in that respect called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. A plug for The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Carl Truman, fantastic. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, John. John. yeah yeah Hmm. yeah that's really good John's asking the question of um how do we understand the way that the Old Testament relates to the New Testament and how relationships kind of progress from things that are similar to things that are different what is it about living under the Old Covenant era in the Old Testament as compared to living in the New Covenant era under Christ that informs our relationships with one another. So uh, just quickly, and then we'll dismiss, you think about in the Old Testament, there were all sorts of different laws and um, practices that were required in order for you to be considered as a part of the covenant people of God. If you were not circumcised as a male, you could not be a part of the people of Israel. There were all sorts of different regulations that you had to submit to. But then as we progress into the New Testament, and as we come to Christ, we recognize that simply submitting to all these regulations is not a means by which we can obtain salvation. It's not a means by which we actually have, can have relationship with people who are different from us. Paul is making that point in Galatians. In Galatians 4, he says uh, in verse 23, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. In order that we might be justified, that is, made righteous by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offsprings heirs according to the promise. The gravity of what Paul is saying here to these Galatians is magnificent. I mean, it's, it's so weighty to recognize that these Jews and these Gentiles who share nothing in common can now relate, not because of these laws, not because of any other sorts of things they share in common, but because of what Christ did on the cross. And so by faith in the sufficiency of what Christ did on the cross, by belief that it is only in Jesus that they can obtain salvation, they now shall share everything in common with people who are different from them. And so let that serve as an encouragement. I'm, I'm glad John brought that point up. Let that serve as an encouragement that in Christ, we can share commonality, we can share similarity with people who are, in terms of the world, completely different than us. And we should go out of our way to pursue those types of relationships. And praise God for the blood of Christ. Blood that puts people who are our enemies to become our friends. Let me pray for us and then we'll conclude. Oh God, we uh, we rejoice at the plan of salvation that you have purchased for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. That first and foremost, as enemies of you, you would reconcile us to God through putting your own son to death on the cross. God, we're grateful for the gift of faith that you give us that enables us with pure eyes to see our need of you, to confess that need and to thereby, through faith, have relationship with you again. God, may that that gospel impress deeply upon our hearts the need for pursuing deep relationships with people who are different from us. Because we know that in Christ, we share everything in common with them. And God, would you equip us with eyes to see the ways that we might steward even the similarity in our relationships from worldly terms with one another. Not for our own sake or our own pleasure, but for your sake. We ask for your help in these things, God. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.